Let's go ahead and be turning to Acts chapter 27. I'm sure there'll be others that'll join us here in a little bit. But Acts chapter 27 is where we've left off last week. And while you're finding your place, let's go ahead and go, Lord, in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. We do thank you for the day that you've given us. Thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. Thank you for those who have uh, gathered out here today. And we just ask your blessings on our services. Ask you, Lord, that you would just be with us as we get into your word and study. Just guide and direct my thoughts and my words that the, the things that we bring out would be helpful and uh, encouraging and convicting as well, Lord. We just pray that you'd be with those who are still on their way out, that you'd watch over them and keep them safe, Lord. Be with those who are unable to be here. Uh, due to other obligations, Lord, and we just ask you that you'd help us as we strive to to be a witness in this community that you've put us in, Lord. Help us to see uh, folks saved. Help us to have an impact on uh, lives around us. Be with the visitors that we've been having, that they would continue coming out. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do for us, Lord. And all these we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so just a little bit of review. We're looking at uh, uh, Paul in or Paul under imprisonment. And he was arrested there several weeks ago and uh, arrested on completely false, trumped-up charges. And they said that he was inciting riots that uh, they caused, all these different things. They just wanted to silence him. And so anyway, uh, after uh, a bunch of back and forth with the religious leaders, with the rulers there in Jerusalem, both Romans and Jews, uh, he is sent to... Uh, Caesarea, and while he is there, he is under imprisonment in Caesarea for a couple years. And now think about this for just a minute. Um, imagine that you know that you are falsely imprisoned. You did nothing to be there. You have been serving faithfully, doing good, uh, serving God with a clear conscience, he says, and you've done nothing wrong. No one has been able to raise any kind of uh true accusations against you, but yet you're setting in prison. Now, to compound things a little bit, imprisonment wouldn't have been uh, all that pleasant either. It wasn't uh, uh, heated cells and televisions and all of that kind of stuff. Now, Paul, he was given great liberty. He was able to uh, have some comforts being a Roman citizen and all, but still imprisonment's not going to be pleasant no matter what, especially for someone like Paul. Paul was a uh, a mover and shaker. Paul was one that had to stay busy. He was very energetic. He was traveling a lot. Uh, he wasn't a, a young man anymore, but he was always on the move. And for him to be held in one place against his will would have been that much more difficult for him. And so anyway, as he was in Caesarea, uh, that was kind of a, a Roman outpost within Israel. While he was there, he came before three rulers three of the most powerful men uh, from the Roman government in that area. And I've said this before, but in any other circumstance, Paul would never get an audience with these men. Okay, if Paul was just going around as the itinerant preacher, if he was just going around as the missionary, he wouldn't have the opportunity to stand before the powerful men that he stood before. But because of his situation, because he, he was falsely imprisoned, because he was going through these difficulties— he was able to minister in a way that he couldn't without. And that gives us a, a different perspective on the things that we go through, on the circumstances in our life. If we had it our way, everything would be sunshine and roses. Everything would be easygoing. Everything would be falling into place. There would be no difficulties, no hardships, no trials. You'd never get sick. There'd never be trouble at work. There would never be disagreements between friends. There would never be uh, any of these kind of things going on. But that's not life. And the Lord tells us for us as his people, if we are following God, if we are serving him, that he works all things together for our good. And it doesn't say that all things are going to be good, but God will bring good out of all things. And so Paul is seeing that firsthand. He is seeing how God is bringing good out of all things. And as I said, if things would have went smoothly for Paul, if he would have just been celebrity preacher, everybody loved him, everything went well, and he was respected by all people, he wouldn't be in the places that he was at, able to minister in the way that he was able to minister. And so the, what we looked at last week was Paul stood before three different guys. 
he stood before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. And I don't advise you naming your children any of those. <laughs> but anyway, uh, if, you, if you want to, that's, that's on you, but I don't advise it. But anyway, he stood before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. And Felix was a, uh, a politician of politicians. He was uh, a corrupt man. He was there by connections and by trickery. And he did not have a good reputation amongst the people that he supposedly served. He was a politician that ruled over the people. And he was able to scheme. He was able to manipulate and to get things done the way that he wanted. And, of course, with all of that, he is very opportunistic. He's willing to do whatever he needs to do to bring about the end that he's after. And, of course, the end that he is after is greater power, greater uh, prestige and uh, fame and riches and all of these things. And so he's not going to do anything that will harm his political career. So whenever Paul comes and stands before uh, Felix, he stands before him a few different times. But whenever he comes and stands before Felix, he takes the opportunity as he is before this powerful, corrupt politician not to rebuke him for his corruption, not to tell him how horrible he is, not to argue for his freedom or against uh, his captors or any of these things. He takes the opportunity to preach the gospel to Felix. He stands before him with a, uh, a ready mind, a clear heart, and he just expounds the truth of the Word of God. Paul isn't desiring that all of his enemies have the wrath of God fall upon them. He's not saying, you falsely imprisoned me, you've corrupted, or you're corrupt, you have uh, mistreated my people, and you deserve hell. He's saying, in spite of all of the wickedness that you have done, the Lord still loves you, and there is a judgment that awaits, and God has made a way for you to escape that judgment. And he preaches the gospel to Felix, and the Bible records the fact that Felix trembled, okay? And that is an interesting thing for us, uh, just to, to get an idea of what was going on with Felix. Felix was a very hard man. He has seen some things. He has done some things, okay? And he's not easily moved. He's not emotional. He's not someone just following the latest trend or the latest craze. This is a hardened man. This is a man who has wielded power. This is a man that has executed prisoners. This is a man that has faced many different things. And as he comes face to face with the God of heaven, with the prospects of eternity, and with the, the message that Paul was preaching to him, he began to shake. He began to tremble. He realized what Paul was saying was true, but unfortunately, he rejected it. He knew that if he was to accept what Paul was preaching, that it was going to cost him. It was going to cost him politically. It was going to cost him uh, in his reputation amongst his peers. He may lose his position, his wealth, the respect of others. And he says, I'm not willing to give up what I have down here to gain what God has for me. And unfortunately, that is where many people land this day uh, on the things of God. They may consider it. They may even believe it. They may even tremble. They may either even come under conviction. But at the end of the day, they say, I would, but I'm not willing to give up down here for what God has for me in eternity. I'm not willing to, to take risks with this life, this short vapor that I have here for what God has for eternity. There's so many people that say, what about my family? What about my career? What about my uh, ambitions and my dreams? What about all these things that I have in place? If I believe, if I put my faith in Christ, if I become a Christian, what will it cost me? And whenever they look at it in, the, in light of that, they do like Felix. They may tremble, but ultimately they reject. Now it says that Felix brought Paul to him often, communed with him. He hoped that uh, he would receive a bribe to release Paul, but he left him in prison for a couple years. And so that would not be that would not set well with us as Christians today, would it? You know, it's like God, I was a witness for you. I stood before this man. I've shared the gospel with him. I've done nothing wrong. God, how could you allow me to remain in this state? I would be so much 
uh, more effective if I was traveling, if I was sailing to Rome, if I was going to you know the the distant reaches, if I was going and uh, preaching to all these other people, I'd be so much more effective. But yet he abode still in Caesarea under imprisonment under Felix, who was only doing it because he knew it would make the Jews mad if he released Paul. And so then we came to Festus, and Festus, basically, he was a clown, okay? He came in, he didn't didn't know the culture, didn't know the people, uh, he had played the political game, and whenever Paul began to speak, whenever he began uh, to uh, give his defense before Festus, Festus shut him down before he even had an opportunity to go on to bigger and better things, before he had the opportunity to even broach the subject of the gospel, because Festus began to mock. He began to ridicule. He began to play games whenever he stood before one of the greatest evangelists, one of the greatest preachers that ever came, the Apostle Paul. Whenever he stood before him, he mocked and he ridiculed. And there are those to this day that's the same way. They don't want to hear the gospel. They don't want to hear... Uh, from any believers, they would rather mock and make fun and believe their little uh, whatever it is that they have to this day and reject the things of God. And that's where Festus was. The third one we looked at, and I'm going along with my introduction, but it'll be okay. Uh, The third one we looked at was King Agrippa. And Agrippa was familiar with the Jews. He was married to a Jewess. He was part Jew, I believe. His family, the Herods, had ruled over the region for four generations or And so anyway, he was very familiar with the culture and with the things that was going on. And he was, many believe, involved in an incestuous relationship with his sister, or half-sister. And that gives you a little bit of idea about his morality, right? He was a man who was driven by his lusts and by his greed, and definitely was not your most moral example. But whenever Paul stood before him, he stood respectfully before him, and he took his time. He said at the beginning of this, this is going to be long, have patience with me. Okay? And so Paul went through his entire testimony before King Agrippa, and at the end of it, uh, Festus kind of interrupted, he mocked, whatever, messed things up a bit, and King Agrippa said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that he was nearly there, that he was at the precipice, but he realized what Paul was going to, what Paul was attempting to do, that Paul wanted to see King Agrippa saved. Okay? And he says, you are looking to convert me. You're looking so quickly, so soon, with so little effort, you're looking to convert me, is what he was saying. And Agrippa, Festus, Felix, all three saw that Paul was innocent. There was no reason for him uh, to be in prison. But whenever he was standing before Festus, whenever he was being mocked, he knew he wasn't getting a fair trial, that Festus was going to play games, and so he appealed directly to Caesar. Okay, And because he was a Roman citizen and he appealed to Caesar, he had, I guess, uh, Felix, Festus, Agrippa, all of them, had the obligation for him to be sent to Rome and to be tried before Caesar. And they were getting ready to send him to Rome an innocent man, a clearly innocent man that they had played games with, and they had nothing to write, no uh, charges to bring before him to send him to Caesar. So imagine Paul just showing up before Caesar and ready to stand trial, and Caesar opens up the papers and there is nothing, no charges laid against him. Nothing more. And he'd be looking at Paul saying, why are you standing here? And he'd say, because the people back in Jerusalem are a bunch of buffoons. Paul probably wouldn't say that, but that's what Caesar would get out of it. And it would look bad on all of them. And so anyway, they have to trump up charges and things to send him to to Caesar. And so today we're going to be looking at his trip to Rome. And it's an eventful trip, okay? But one of the things that we have been, uh, one of the things we've been emphasizing all the way through this is Paul's attitude. It is the way that Paul is, conducting himself, okay? And I've already brought up just in our introduction today that for us as believers, for us today, it would be difficult for us to behave ourselves in the way that Paul did, right? It takes walking with God. It takes being filled with the Holy Spirit. It takes trusting Him 
both now and with our future, for us to be able to to stand in adversity, to stand before wicked and deceitful men, and be able to do so with the character that Paul did. Okay? It takes the grace of God. And Paul had that. He walked with God daily. And so anyway, <clears throat> have to ignore our background noise there. But anyway, whenever we come to chapter number 27, we're going to follow Paul's uh, travels to Rome. And he is going to go, and eventually he's going to stand before Caesar. And Caesar, whom he's going to stand before, Caesar is a title. It's a title like Pharaoh, like king, or uh, all these other different things that we find throughout Scripture. But it is a title. And the Caesar that he's going to stand before is Nero. Anyone familiar with Nero? Okay. Why? <laughs> he was. Okay. So if we know a little bit about Roman history, uh, even secular historians will uh, fill in the rest of the gaps on this. But Nero was a maniac. He was crazy. Um, but at this time, whenever Paul appeals to him, his crazy hasn't become apparent yet. Okay. And so at this time, it is right around uh, 60 to 62 A.D. And um, yeah, it's right around 60 A.D. And Caesar Nero is on the throne uh, over the Roman Empire. And during this time, he's under the counsel of a couple men that keep him kind of reined in and balanced. But later on, as the power corrupts as it goes to his head. Uh, he becomes more and more insane. In 64 AD, uh, Rome burnt. Okay, Because of Nero's neglect, because of some of the things that Nero does, the city of Rome catches fire. It burns for days, and the city burns. The capital of the Roman Empire burns down. That's a historical fact. But what Nero does, he needs a scapegoat to take the, the heat off of himself, and so he blames the Christians for burning Rome. And then he starts uh, waging a war against Christians. Uh, as a matter of fact, historians tell us that he would dip Christians in wax and set them on fire to light his gardens. Okay? That is the kind of man that Nero was. So if you ever hear the term Roman candles, like the fireworks, that was the origin of those, burning Christians. Okay? And so that was the kind of man that he was. And then in 68 AD, Nero ends up committing suicide and he dies. So the most powerful man in the world at that time goes crazy and kills himself. Okay? And this is the man before whom Paul is going to stand. Now, unfortunately, the Bible doesn't record when Paul stands before Nero, but we do believe that Paul was released. Okay, he was released for a season. So he was in Rome for about two years. We're going to find out in the end of the book of Acts. He was in Rome in prison for about two years. Uh, he's eventually going to either have his case thrown out or he's going to stand before Nero, and I believe he did. He's going to stand before Nero. Nero is going to hear that there is no charges against him worthy of death. He's going to say, this was a waste of my time. He's going to turn Paul loose. Probably fire a couple of guys back in Jerusalem, right? Back in back in Israel. And Paul's going to be set free. He's going to go about and continue to minister. And his adventures during that time are not recorded in Scripture. Uh, he said that he had a desire to go to Spain and maybe even to the area of uh, the Gauls, which was in Britain, okay? And at the end, he tells Timothy, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course I have kept the faith. Basically, he says, I have completed everything that I've set out to do. So many people speculate that he was able to reach those far regions. Okay, He says, I've, I've done everything that I was supposed to. And if it was his desire to do that, most likely he had done that. Okay, And so he would have been rearrested under uh, Nero's persecution of the Christians, and he would have been, uh, he would have been killed as a result of that. We find that there was two imprisonments. The first one, he was imprisoned in his own hired house. He had uh, freedom for anybody to come to him and to minister in Rome. 
But in the second one, he was imprisoned in a dungeon, and he was imprisoned in bad conditions, and he had asked for Timothy to come and bring the parchments and bring his cloak uh, and all of those things. And so two different imprisonments. So this is all just a little bit of background detail to help us to know how all of this is going along. But he ends up dying, being executed by Nero, and then within a few years, Nero himself is dead. And I believe part of the reason why he was so troubled in mind is because of uh, the way that he treated Paul. Okay? And that is just my opinion. But if you study through Scripture and history and find the people who interacted with the apostles and with Christ, you find the ones that mistreated them and did them wrong ended up having horrible ends. Okay? You have uh, Pilate who condemned Jesus, washed his hands of the matter within a short amount of time, ended up uh, having uh, mental illness, committed suicide. There's Pilate for you. Um, I'm trying to remember Herod that killed John the Baptist was a similar fate. He was the one that was eaten by worms. Um, Herod that killed the, the babies in Jerusalem. I'm thinking that he... I can't say for sure on him. And so you're seeing all these different ones that interact with the apostles. They have the gospel shared with them. They have opportunities to be saved. And they kill God's very messengers. And then they end up having uh, horrible ends themselves. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, getting into Acts chapter 27, it says, And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy... They delivered Paul to Paul and certain other prisoners under one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus's band, and entering into a ship of Adramidium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, uh, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. And the next day we touched at Sidon, and Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go into his friends to refresh himself. And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia, and there a centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. And when, when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Nidus, uh, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete and over against uh, Samoon, and hardly passing it, came into a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lycia. Now when much time was spent, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast <clears throat> was now already passed, Paul admonished them, and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lady and the ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenix and there to winter, which is a haven of Crete, and lieth toward the southwest and the northwest. And when the southwest and when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. And so this is a very detailed uh, travel journal, I guess. In our first verse, whenever uh, we start reading there in chapter 27, we find a clue to what's going on. We know that Luke is the author of the book of Acts, right? Luke authored Acts and the gospel that uh, is named after him, okay? And he wrote both of those to a Greek man, probably a an official, Greek, yeah, Greek, probably an official within the Roman government, and he is explaining to this man the, the faith in Christ, okay? He is going through and he's telling the whole story of Jesus from his birth to his death, the birth of the church all the way up until the place where Paul's in prison in Rome. And these are the things that Luke is uh, conferring to this guy. It's possible that Luke wrote all of these things to someone he met in Rome 
who was in a position of authority and of power, and he wrote basically a thorough defense of the Christian faith while Paul was imprisoned. Okay, that's one reason why it only goes to the time where Paul is imprisoned in Rome, is it was probably during that time that Luke was writing this. But Luke was a Greek physician, a doctor, and he is very thorough in the things that he writes. And so in verse number one, it says it was determined that we should sail into Italy. Now, that we means that Luke is part of the, the group that is going. Luke is on the boat with Paul as he's traveling to Rome. And as you read through the book of Acts, you find that Luke is kind of coming and going. There's times that he is there giving first-person, uh, first, I guess, eyewitness account, and there are other times that he is writing about things where he wasn't there. And you don't really catch on to it because Luke doesn't uh, put any, any spotlight on himself. Okay, His comings and goings in Acts uh, is reflected in the pronoun usage. And I hate to even use that term right now because of all the fight over pronouns. But whenever he is talking about they and them and what they were doing, then that was whenever he was away from them and he's giving an account of what was going on. But whenever he says we, it means he was riding right along with them. The only reason I bring that out is all this is an eyewitness account by Luke. Luke decided that if Paul is going to Rome, if Paul is going to be a prisoner, then I'm going to go along with him. Luke was willing to uh, put himself in that place to subject himself to all these things in order to minister to Paul. Another one that we find is that's going along with him is this man, excuse me, uh, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. He was one of them who came to Jerusalem with Paul. He was one of the ones that was helping to oversee this offering that was being taken to Jerusalem. So that means that Aristarchus left his home, traveled to Jerusalem with Paul, and stayed with Paul for the two years that he was in imprisonment. And then, in addition to that, he decided that he was going to go along with Paul, at least on part of his journey toward Rome. It says that the, the boat that they were going on had intended to go by Asia, and then Aristarchus would be able to, to make his way from there and go back home. That was the plan. And so now we've got an idea of our characters here. So Paul is not the only Christian on the boat. We've got Aristarchus and Luke as well. Yeah, Aristarchus and Luke as well. And as he starts going through, I'm not going to go over all the different places, but we find that very quickly, Paul starts to win over the centurion. He starts to win over the, the Roman official that is put in place, of, or put in charge of him. Okay? And this is what Paul always does. Uh, because of his uh, his meekness, his humility, because of the way that he conducts himself, because of the respect that he has for others, it commands respect toward himself. And that's a great lesson for us because in the world that we live in, whenever we talk about commanding respect, we think that is through power or force or uh, assertiveness. But Paul is a great example that whenever we treat people respectfully, they respond in kind. Okay? Not always, but oftentimes. And so anyway, whenever they've made a short trip here in verse 3, they come to Sidon. If you follow on a map, which I don't have before us right now, you leave out of Jerusalem. You've got Caesarea is above Jerusalem, kind of coming around uh, the sea there. And so you've got Jerusalem. You've got Caesarea, which is where they take it, take it off from. And then you come even a little bit further up. You've got Tyre. And then you've got Sidon. So those are just north of Jerusalem, and he hasn't traveled too far yet. Uh, but they stop in Sidon, and it says in verse 3 that the, the Roman official courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go into his friends and refresh himself. So he was released as a prisoner. He was in trust. He probably had a soldier that went along with him. But he went and found Christians there in Sidon, spent time with the Christians, Whenever it says that he refreshed himself, most likely they, they gave him supplies and things that he was going to need for his journey. Okay? And so Paul is still ministering to believers even while he is imprisoned, even while he is traveling to Rome at the hands of uh, Roman guards. And so they launch from thence, and in verse number four, we have the first indicator that things were going to be difficult. 
it says that the winds were contrary, and that really uh, outlines the rest of the tra- chapter, the rest of their travel. Paul was accustomed to rough voyages at sea. Uh, if we look in the book of 2 Corinthians, we find that, and by the way, 2 Corinthians was written before this, okay? In the book of 2 Corinthians, we find that Paul was shipwrecked three times, that once he spent a day and a night afloat in the ocean. So Paul was accustomed to bad voyages, and this one wasn't going to be any better. And so anyway, we go through all these different places that he's sailing. They're just kind of going along on small boats from place to place, and the Roman officials are doing the best they can to get all their prisoners and to get themselves around to Rome. There wasn't any boats going directly across, and so they had to go in these smaller boats that kind of hugged the coastline and went from place to place. And so they were kind of hopping on, hopping off. I've compared it in the past to like the Dublin bus. You know, it's stopping in every town, every village. There's all these different places along. That's what these boats were doing. And so each place as he's stopping along, he's uh, sometimes getting opportunities to minister to the people who are there, search out Christians and things. But now there's already winds that's contrary. It's taking them off course. It's taking places they don't want to go. Uh, They get around to, uh, finally get around to Asia. Uh, That's where that Lycia and uh, Myra is. The southernmost portion of the, the region of Asia. And so anyway, they get to there and they find a grain ship out of Alexandria. Alexandria is down in Egypt, and at that time, uh, Egypt was the the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. That was where all of the grain was coming from uh, to feed the Roman Empire. And so this ship out of Alexandria was a huge boat. They've been on little boats all along. Now they're on a huge one. As a matter of fact, we're going to find out later on that in addition to their cargo of grain, they also had 276 people on board. It was a big boat. And so whenever the Roman soldier finds the ship out of Alexandria going on a direct course to to Italy, to Rome, he says, this is our ticket. This is where we need to go. It wasn't a carnival cruise line. It wasn't, you know, a passenger ship, but it was a, a grain ship. It was a merchant ship. And so he kind of forces passage on this. He says, okay, guys, you're going to Rome we're going with you. We are Roman guards. We are Roman soldiers. And whether you like it or not, we're traveling along. And so they board the boat and they are making their way. And shortly after they board the boat, they haven't went very far at all. They were in the time of the year when sailing was dangerous. It would have been somewhere around October. And the the seas at that time of year uh, are prone to uh, storms cropping up, gales and hurricane type storms. Coming up, they knew that sailing was dangerous, but they had money to be made. The merchantmen needed to unload their cargo because the way that you make money in commerce is by moving goods. And the longer that the stuff is on their boat, the less money that they are making. So they want to get there quickly. The soldiers are wanting to get to Rome quickly because they are in charge of prisoners. And with them being in charge of prisoners, the longer they have the prisoners, the more chances there are for the prisoners to escape. And if Roman soldiers lose their prisoners that they are in charge of, they pay life for life. Okay? If you lose a prisoner, then you would pay with your life. And so the Romans wanted to get back to Rome as quickly as possible to turn these prisoners over to someone else and to relieve themselves of their duty. Not only that, but typically soldiers were more accustomed to being on land than being on sea. They weren't sailors, they were soldiers. And so they probably didn't enjoy their their boat ride on a grain ship. And so everyone had a reason to expedite this journey, to get there quickly. Everyone wanted to get to Rome fast uh, to relieve themselves of their duties, and that's going to play into some bad decisions here in just a moment. They got in a hurry. That's what I'm trying to bring out here. And whenever we get in a hurry, we're going to do stupid stuff. Okay? And so that's what ends up happening here. And so in verse number nine, they are stuck on the sea, contrary winds, huge load of grain, 
lots of people, big boat, and they come into a big storm. The winds aren't cooperating with them. They're not making any progress. And so they come to the island of Crete. Okay? And they got to the place that is called the Fair Havens. And they've been fighting the storms. They've been fighting the winds. And as they come under the island of Crete, the land gives them a little bit of a reprieve from the winds that are blowing against them. They are kind of sheltered because of the land. They're not out in the open ocean getting battered by the waves. And so they come to this place, the Fair Havens, and Paul speaks to them here in verse number 10 and says, Sirs, I perceive that the journey ahead of us, if you leave from this place, we're going to have a lot of trouble. It's going to be of great loss, not only of our our um, cargo, but also of the ship and maybe even our lives. And so Paul stands before all of them and says, don't do it. Don't loose from here. Don't go onward. Just stay here. It's too dangerous to sail on. But now put yourself in the place of the owner of the boat and of the centurion or the guard that is overseeing the prisoners. Is Paul's word going to carry much weight with you? Most likely not. And so everyone is in a hurry. Everybody has a reason to get to Rome as fast as they can. And so they're looking at the storm. They're taking a, cha- uh, taking a look at their odds. They look at the, the place that they are at, the Fair Havens. Sounds nice, right? But they said it wasn't commodious for them to lodge in. It wasn't a good port for them to winter in with a huge boat, lots of grain, and many people, they said this isn't going to be a comfortable place to stay. We can go somewhere that's going to be more enjoyable for us. That's going to provide more comfort for us. That's going to be more suitable for what we're doing. And so they said, we're going to move onward. So what all are they looking for? They're looking for progress. They say, we want to move forward. We want to get out of here. They're looking for comfort. This place isn't commodious. This isn't a nice place to stay. So we want somewhere more comfortable. We want to make progress. We want to see uh, uh, see ourselves getting a little further down the road, if you will. And we just, we need to keep moving. We need to keep making progress. We need to keep doing these things. This is what's going on in their mind. We need to, uh, another thing was the, the finances. The faster they get there, the better. So they make plans. They're going to just go further around the island of Crete to another harbor. Uh, just a very short journey. It's not going to make a lot of progress, but it's a, a very short journey. But it's going to be a lot better place for them to winter at. And Paul says, don't do it. And as they consider, he is a prisoner. He is a tent maker. He is a preacher. He is not a sailor. He doesn't know what he's doing. They're not taking into account that he is connected with the God of all heavens and glory. They're not taking into account all the uh, time that he has spent on boats and the times that he has been shipwrecked, probably from people not listening to him before. But as they are considering their options, they said, I'm going to go with the experts, not with Paul. Okay? That is the decision they make. We're going to go with the experts. And the reason why I bring that out is that this is still the way that the world operates today. Whenever we are considering what the Word of God says, because Paul is connected to God. Paul is speaking on behalf of God. Paul is an apostle. He is a prophet. He is able to give them wise counsel. He knows what he's talking about. But whenever people today are between what God says and what the experts say, what do people usually tend to do? They side with the experts, right? And even for us as Christians, we are tempted at times. We think that we are going to fare better. We think that, well, maybe the Bible says that, but I think I'll be okay. We do that in different areas in our lives. Whenever the Bible talks about uh, walking honestly before all men, we say, well, I can bend the truth a little bit. I can compromise for the sake of my job. I can uh, do some things that might be a little bit questionable, because I think it's going to get me further along for the ones who are uh, looking at uh, different relationships. Well, I can be unequally yoked. I think I'll be the 
the uh, exception, not the rule. I'll have a, a business partner who is not a Christian, and we might not see things exactly the same way, but I think we can make it work unequally yoked. Uh, we might be looking at it as a uh, with relationships with potential spouses and say, well, I know that they don't really go to church. I know they're not really a Christian, but we have so much in common. What does the Bible say about it? Right? But we tend to look for other people who will say the things that we want to hear. We look for an expert that will uh, come to our our side of the equation, right? Whenever we look at what the Bible says concerning uh, the origins of the world, the Bible says that God created all things. But the experts say that it evolved. And so even Christians are coming to doubt the words of Scripture. They're coming to say, well, I know the Bible says that, but look at all of the science. And so they start picking the Bible. You see how easily it comes whenever we have the Word of God on one hand. We have uh, the authoritative uh, record coming from God on one hand. But then we have our opinions, our desires, wanting to make it a little further down the road, wanting to make a little bit of progress. And then we also have the Word of the experts that will weight our opinions just a little bit more. And we end up making foolish decisions because our heart is in the wrong place. Our desires are in the wrong place, and our allegiance is in the wrong place. We're siding with the ones that tell us what we want to hear instead of what we need to hear. And so what Paul told them, even though the Roman official had respect unto Paul, he says, yes, you're a good man. Yes, you have treated me well. You've been respectful toward me. I trust you. I'll give you liberty to go see people, all all these different things. But whenever it comes to how to how to steer the ship, I'm going to trust that guy. And so anyway, verse 11, Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than the things which were spoken by Paul, a mistake that he's going to learn not to make again. Okay? And it says, Because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also. So now we've got a little bit of a democratic par- uh, process here right? The more part. There was more people in favor of moving on than on staying. There were, Paul was outnumbered. So not only were the experts against Paul, the crowds were against Paul. And it says, to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenix and there to winter, which is a haven of Crete and lieth toward the, the south, uh, southwest and the northwest. So all signs pointed to Paul was wrong. But was Paul wrong? He wasn't wrong. Verse number 13, and it says, And when the south blew soft, or the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. So as all this argument's going on, they said, we need to hurry. We need to get to the next port. We need to find a better place to winter. We can't listen to Paul. We're going to listen to the crowds. We're going to listen to the experts. We're going to do the things that we want to do here. The south wind started blowing softly. Now, they were in the southern side of, uh, of Crete, and they were trying to go northwest. Okay, And as the south wind was blowing softly, they said, this is a wind that we can sail by. Things are pleasant. There's no storms on the horizon. We can take off. They had a false confidence. Okay? Things were going smoothly because of this south wind. And the reason I'm bringing this out for us today is that oftentimes there will be circumstances that come into our lives that give us a false sense of confidence. While they are trying to, to figure out the direction to go, they see the wind blowing softly, it lulls them into a false sense of security, false confidence, and they say, see, there's our sign. Paul was wrong, and things are going smoothly, things will be great, and Paul's going to see. We'll show him. And so they take off. And so they had a false confidence because of temporary circumstances. Not only that, it says, suppose they had to train their purpose Loosing thence, they sailed by Crete. They said, here's our chance, boys. Limited time offer. Let's go while the getting's good. Okay? All these things are playing into their decision. 
And hopefully you're, you're getting the application from this. Hopefully you're seeing what's going on. Uh, Paul is a representative of God and of his word. Okay, Paul and God's word is saying, don't do it. Their hearts, their minds, the crowds around them, all the experts, everyone is saying, don't listen to God. Don't listen to his word. You do what we're telling you to do. See, this is even, this is to give you more confidence. This is to give you more assurance. The wind's blowing softly. Things are going in your direction. Ignore all the things that Paul has said. And so we set out in false assurance. We see that everything seems so welcome. You realize that the devil can also give opportunities. And the reason I say that is a lot of many Christians have been fooled by saying, look, it's a sign from God. Look at this opportunity. Look at this open door. It's a sign from God. The devil can open doors too. Okay? And so they said, we have an open door. It's got to be of God, even though it's contrary to God's word. And so they set sail. In verse number 14, but not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurocladon. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. So they confidently set out going against the word of God thinking that they had their purpose, thinking, hey, we're going to get one over on Paul. And it says, not very long after that. As soon as they got away from sight of the land, the storm came in and it carried them away. Now, if you look at this on a map, which if you've got maps in the back of your Bible, you see this, but they loosed out of Crete. Crete was a little bit south of Asia and Rome is over here. Okay, so they're here. Rome's up here. And so they were wanting to go around the island of Crete just a little bit further. And then whenever the dangerous sailing season passes, they're going to come from the point of Crete and go up to Rome. Okay, so they're going from this part of Crete to this part of Crete. But when they lose from Crete, the storm comes and they go this way. It should be easy just to go from here to here, right? But as soon as they come out of here against Paul's advice, the storm comes and they're blown off course, and they're being blown toward Africa, okay? In a huge and heavy ship loaded with valuable cargo and many men's lives that they've just placed in jeopardy because they didn't listen to Paul. And so it says we let her drive. That means that they just basically said there's nothing that we can do with it. We can't control it. We can't do anything. And they just turned it loose and just were at the mercy of the wind, the waves, and the storm. And it says, running under a certain island, which is called Colada, we had much work to come by the boat, which when they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ship and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, strike sail, and so were driven. Whenever it says they come under the island of Colada, they were come under its protection, if you will. Land during sailing, land means that it uh, gives you a little bit of a protection against the storms. It means that it's going to uh, break the air currents, break the waves and things. It's going to give them a, a measure of shelter. So the storm came on them so fast that they weren't able to prepare for it. They came to this island. It gave them enough of a shelter from the storm that then they were able to start making preparation. Whenever it says much work was come by the boat, those huge merchant ships would have a, a smaller boat trailing along behind it, kind of a lifeboat, a dinghy, okay? And during stormy weather, during times whenever things got difficult, they would, instead of towing that boat, they would bring it aboard. And so the storm came on them so quickly that they weren't able to bring their little, uh, their little boat on board. And so when they finally got a little bit of a reprieve, they brought the little boat on board. And then whenever it says they undergirded the ship and they used helps, they would tie ropes or cables around the hull of the boat to keep it from breaking apart, from falling apart during the storms. Okay, because they were wooden boats. They were put together by, you know, with, with boards, with screws, nails, whatever. And as they're being tossed about on the sea, they would have these cables or these ropes that went around the bottom of the boat. It would be resistance in good sailing, but during storms, it would provide strengthening for the hull to keep it from falling apart. So they're basically holding it together by duct tape, if you will. 
they're desperate at this time. They they realize they're in over their heads, but it's too late. And so they're running these ropes, these cables around underneath the ship, undergirding it, trying to prepare to head into the worst of this storm. And after they do this, they said, we have to get going or else we're going to run onto the sandbar, sandbars that was just south of them down in the northern part of Africa. Okay, They said, we've got to get out of here. They straight sail. They went... <clears throat> In verse 18, it says, And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest the next day, they lighten the ship. You know how you lighten a ship? You start throwing stuff overboard. Okay? And if you think about sailing, if you think about being on a boat, they're not going to have a whole lot of unnecessary items on the boat. Whenever they start chucking stuff overboard, they're getting desperate. So they're lightening the ship because how low they're riding in the water. They're just hoping to survive now. That's what that um, conveys to us. Whenever they're throwing stuff overboard, they're saying our lives are worth more than the stuff that we're getting rid of. They are just hoping to survive now. And so they lighten the ship, and it says 19, and the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. So now they are throwing away the necessary items of the ship. The tackling is going to be uh, like all of the the gear that goes along with the boat to keep it going. So they're throwing now, not just the, okay, whenever they first start lightning, it's like, okay, get rid of anything that's not necessary. Then when they start throwing the tackling, they're like, this stuff's not necessary if it goes down. Okay, so now they're throwing the extra stuff off. And eventually we're going to see that they are even getting rid of the cargo. They're getting rid of all the grain before it's all over with, lightening it as much as they can. They said, forget about making money. Forget about the the tools for the, the ship. We're just trying to keep the boat afloat long enough to where we can find enough land for us to climb onto to get out of this storm. For us as uh, land dwellers, I don't think we can fully appreciate all this that's going on but whenever you start getting rid of parts of the boat and when you start getting rid of the cargo you are already long beyond any hopes of profit okay this is completely survival mode now and paul has warned them ahead of time that this voyage this journey is going to come at a great cost not just of the cargo but also of the boat maybe even the loss of lives he told them this ahead of time and it's coming to pass. In verse 20, it says, And when neither the sun nor the stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. So it was a long period of time, total storm, being tossed in the ocean at its mercy, I imagine everyone was nauseous. Everyone was seasick. They've already gotten rid of as much as they could. And now they've just finally said, this is it. This is how we die. Paul was right. They lost all hope. But all hope wasn't one. One thing that we knew before this ever started was Paul's going to survive. Right? Right? How do we know Paul's going to survive? He's the main character of the story. He's the hero, right? We've watched too many movies. How do we know that Paul's going to survive? God said you're going to Rome. And so Paul is not going to go to the bottom of the ocean. He's going to Rome. We already have an assurance. And I believe this is one of the ways that Paul was able to go through all of this and remain calm because his faith was in God and his faith was in God's word. And he says, God says, I'm going to make it to Rome. I'm going to make it to Rome. However, Paul had no guarantee for anyone else on that boat, and knowing Paul, he cared about the other souls on that boat. If nothing else, for Luke, right? But I believe he cared for every one of those 276 souls that was on that boat. And because of that, he is petitioning, he is praying, he's trying everything he can for their sake. And so in verse number 21, it says, After a long abstinence, so Paul has held his tongue for a long time. After a long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them 
and said, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me, and have not loosed from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God, that it shall be even as it was told me. Howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island. But when the fourteenth night was come, and as we were driven up and down in Adria, about midnight the shipmen deemed that they drew, ne drew near to some country, and sounded and found it twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again and found it fifteen fathoms. Then fearing lest we should have fallen upon the rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for day. So uh, I need to need to hurry in this. But it says after a long abstinence, Paul has held his tongue for a long time. The people have lost hope. They are getting desperate. They've thrown everything overboard that they could at this time. And they have just been tossed all over the ocean. And Paul stands up before them and says, I told you so. But knowing Paul, this wasn't braggingly, this wasn't arrogant, this wasn't him saying, hey, you should have listened to me, who was right and who was wrong. That wasn't Paul's attitude. But instead, Paul was saying, I told you this before it happened. This should add some weight to my words. I predicted this because I know God. And so he wasn't trying to get vindication. He wasn't trying to rub it in their faces, if you will. Instead, he is showing them, you need to listen because of who he was connected to. And so don't think that as Christians, we have a place to go out and uh, boast and brag and say, hey, we knew what we were talking about. He's saying, we can trust God. And he is preparing for what he's getting ready to tell them. He says, I told you before we loosed, that this was going to happen. Now listen to what I have to say this time because you didn't listen the last time. Okay? And he says, we're not going to lose any man's life among us, but we are going to lose the boat. And that's what ends up happening. And the reason why he is able to say this or predict this, he says, there stood an angel by me, an angel of God, and he says, whom I, of whom I... Excuse me, whose I am and of whom I serve. My God sent an angel, stood by me this night, told me you are going to complete this journey. You are going to see Rome. And God has been merciful not only to spare you of this, but all of the people that are on the boat with you. And he tells them, I believe God. And so his desire for the rest of these people is that they believe God as well. The lesson that we can learn from this is though these people refused the word of God, they didn't believe what Paul had to say, they got themselves in a mess, God is a God of mercy, and God is giving them another chance. It doesn't mean there isn't consequences to their action. They're going to lose the boat, they're going to lose the cargo, but they're not going to lose their lives because God is merciful. Whenever we go uh, maybe arrogantly, or foolishly against the things of God, whenever we go about trying to do the things that we want to do by our own power against, uh, against the advice of godly men, against the advice of God's word, we get ourselves in trouble. God doesn't just step back and say, hey, you got what you deserve. He still has a place for us to have mercy showed upon us. He has a place for us to return to him. There's going to be consequences for our actions, but yet he's going to welcome us in. He's going to watch over us. He's going to protect us. He's going to take care of us whenever we return to him, whenever we believe him. Okay? So Paul says, you didn't listen the first time. You got yourself in a mess. Listen this time. And it says, we're going to be cast upon an island. And it says, but when the 14th night was come, that's a long time. Two weeks in a storm. And because of our stupidity, because we refuse to trust God, 
we end up in storms. We suffer a loss, but God is still good and he's still with us. And so they, after two weeks, they drew near to land. They found out that they were close by. They set anchors and wished for day, it says. But in verse number 30, it says, And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat into the sea under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. Remember how they took the, the lifeboat, the little dinghy, up into the boat? Now they're getting ready to, to lower it back down. They came close enough. They came close enough to the land that the sailors said, here's our chance to escape. We've been in this storm long enough. We've lost enough. And so we're going to, remember, this is the sailors. This is the crew of the boat. They pretend like they're going to let anchors out. They're being uh, misleading. Okay. And they start letting down the lifeboat. And the sailors are going to desert their post and leave all of the rest of the passengers there to fend for themselves in the storm. So if the lifeboat is gone and the crew is gone, what's going to happen to all the people in the boat? They're going to die. So Paul looks at the century and he says, if you let the crew leave, we're all going to die. And now the centurion, after he's listened to Paul for a while, after everything that Paul has said has come to pass, the centurion listens, he cuts the rope, he lets the boat fall, and now the sailors are mad. But everybody's safe. Not only that, but their boat, which they're planning on taking to land, is going because they had to cut it off. And so anyway, after all this is done, Paul tells them everything's going to be grand, We've been in a, through this storm. No one's eaten for a long time because, hey, everybody's been seasick. He says, things are going to be great tomorrow. Go ahead and eat. And so they eat. They listen to Paul. Paul lightens the mood. He encourages the people. So remember, he is a prisoner. He's been mistreated. But all along, he is counseling the people. He's showing care. He's showing respect to the people. And he is encouraging those who are discouraged, even though he's the one that's at a disadvantage. In our lives, most likely, whenever we feel disadvantaged, whenever we feel like the world is against us, we curl up in our own little hole, we get discouraged, we start to pout, and we feel like, hey, let everybody get fend for themselves. Let them do their own thing. I don't care about anyone else. Paul didn't do that. As I said, he's a great example. He's been walking with God. He's trusting the Lord. And because of that, he is able to administer, excuse me, he's able to minister even in uncertain times, even in difficulties. And it's because of his faith in God. It's because that he's walked with God. So though he isn't a sailor, though he isn't a soldier, he is just a prisoner. He is the one that is setting the, the tone for the entire ship. And so after he does all these things, everyone is now in... Uh, a lot better place mentally, physically. And whenever the day breaks, they see a place, they start making way for shore in this huge grain boat, and they run aground, and the wind batters the boat, and the waves batter the boat, and the boat breaks up and falls apart. And it says in verse number 42, and the soldier's counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim, should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. And so anyway, after Paul has behaved himself wisely throughout all of this, he's kept his head, he's relied on his God, he has shown respect to everyone that was on the ship, and time after time, God's delivering him. And as the ship is breaking apart, the soldiers say, hey, we need to kill all the prisoners because if any of them escape, we are going to be held accountable for them. And the centurion says, I'm willing to take the risk in order to save Paul's life. Paul has endeared himself to the centurion. Okay, uh, The Bible tells us in one place, he that winneth souls is wise. And that's often taken to be like going out and trying to convert people and whatnot. But the, the meaning of that passage is, is whenever we are living in such a way to endear people to ourselves, whenever we are 
making friends of the people around us, it shows great wisdom. Paul's made friends of these people in the boat, and look, it's benefited him. In our lives, too often, we're quick to cut people off. We're quick to be arrogant, to be uh, nasty to people, to treat people as if they're disposable, right? But Paul's an example of valuing all the lives around us, of not treating anyone as being disposable, of trying to treat all people, as the Bible says, as we would have them to treat us. And so he does this, and it benefits him here because the soldier says, I don't want to see Paul die, so I'll do whatever it takes to keep him from dying. And he commands all of them, get to land however you can. If you can swim, swim to land. If you can't swim, grab a hold of a board. So the ship that had brought him that far was going to take him that last little bit, even if it was on the broken pieces of the boat. And so they, they come to the land. Paul is safe. All of the 276 men that was on the boat with him, and all of them are going to have a different opinion of Paul, right? Everything that he has said has come to pass because he's been walking with God and following God, trusting God. And as a result, he's having an impact showing the people around him the God that he serves, right? And so anyway, that brings us to the end of that chapter. Uh, I had hoped to cover chapter 28, but you know how that goes. So does anyone have any questions or comments on what we've looked at this morning? Okay, if no one has any questions or comments, we'll take a short break and we'll get into our next service. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for Paul's example, even in uh, adverse situations, even in the difficulties that he was able to minister, he was able to be a witness, uh, he was able to keep his head because he trusted in you. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. We thank you for your love for us. And Lord, we just ask you to be with our next service as well. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name and amen.